Section eleven of a book of scoundrels by Charles Wibley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Shepherd and Cartouche, Part One, Jack Shepherd. It was midnight when Jack Shepherd reached the leads, wearied by his magical achievement and still fearful of discovery. The jolly pair of handcuffs provided by the thoughtful governor lay discarded in his distant cell. The chains which a few hours since had grappled him to the floor encumbered now the useless staple. No trace of the ancient slavery disgraced him, save the iron anklets which clung about his legs, though many a broken wall and shattered lock must serve for evidence of his prowess on the morrow. The stone jug was all bechipped and shattered. From the castle he had forced his way through a nine-foot wall into the red room, whose bolts, bars, and hinges he had ruined to gain the chapel. The road thence to the roof and to freedom was hindered by three stubborn iron doors, yet naught stood in the way of Shepherd's genius, and he was sensible at last of the night-air chill upon his cheek. But liberty was not yet. There was still a fall of forty feet, and he must needs repass the wreckage of his own making to filch the blankets from his cell. In terror, lest he should awaken the master-side debtors, he hastened back to the roof, lashed the coverlets together, and as the city clocks clashed twelve, he dropped noiselessly upon the leads of a turner's house, built against the prison's outer wall. Behind him Newgate was cut out a black mass against the sky. At his feet glimmered the garret window of the turner's house, and behind the winking casement he could see the turner's servant going to bed. Through her chamber lay the road to glory and Clare Market, and breathlessly did Shepherd watch till the candle should be extinguished and the maid silenced in sleep. In his anxiety he must tarry, tarry and for a weary hour he kicked his heels upon the leads, ambition still too uncertain for quietude. Yet he could not but catch a solace from his splendid craft. Said he to himself, Am I not the most accomplished slipstring the world has ever known? The broken wall of every round house in town attests my bravery. Light-limbed though I be, have I not forced the impregnable castle itself? And my enemies, are they not to-day writhing in distress? The head of Blueskin, that pitiful thief, quivers in the noose, and Jonathan Wilde bleeds at the throat from the dregs of a coward's courage. What a triumph shall be mine when the keeper finds the stronghold tenantless! Now unnumbered with the affronts he had suffered from the keeper's impertinence, and he chuckled aloud at his own witty rejoinder. Only two days since the jailer had caught him tampering with his irons. "'Young man,' he had said, "'I see what you've been doing, but the affair betwixt us stands thus. It is your business to make your escape, and mine to take care you shall not.' Jack had answered coolly enough. "'Then let's both mind our own business.' And it was to some purpose that he had minded his. The letter to his baffled guardian, already sketched in his mind, tickled him afresh, when suddenly he leaps to his feet and begins to force the garret window. The turner's maid was a heavy sleeper, 
and Shepherd crept from her garret to the twisted stair in peace. Once on a lower floor his heart beat faster at the trumpetings of the turner's nose, but he knew no check until he reached the street door. The bolt was withdrawn in an instant, but the lock was turned, and the key nowhere to be found. However, though the risk of disturbance was greater than in Newgate, the task was light enough, and with an iron link from his fetter, and a rusty nail which had served him bravely, the box was wrenched off in a trice, and Shepherd stood unattended in the old bailey. At first he was minded to make for his ancient haunts, or to conceal himself within the liberty of Westminster, but the fetterlocks were still upon his legs, and he knew that detection would be easy as long as he was thus embarrassed. Wherefore, weary and unhungered, he turned his steps northward, and never rested until he had gained Finchley Common. At break of day, when the world re-awoke from the fear of thieves, he feigned a limp at a cottage door, and borrowed a hammer to straighten a pinching shoe. Five minutes behind a hedge, and his anklets had dropped from him, and thus a free man he took to the high road. After all, he was persuaded to desert London, and to escape a while from the sturdy embrace of Edgeworth Bess. Moreover, if Bess herself were in the lock-up, he still feared the interested affection of Mistress Maggot, that other doxy whose avarice would surely drive him upon a dangerous enterprise. So he struck across country, and kept starvation from him by petty theft. Up and down England he wandered in solitary insolence. Once, saith rumour, his lithe apparition startled the peace of Nottingham. Once he was well-nigh caught begging wort at a brew-house in Thames Street. But he might as well have lingered in Newgate, as waste his opportunity far from the delights of town. The old lust of life still impelled him, and a week after the hue and cry was raised, he crept at dead of night down Drury Lane. Here he found harbourage with a friendly fence, Wilde's mortal enemy, who promised him a safe conduct across the seas. But the desire of work proved too strong for prudence, and in a fortnight he had planned an attack on the pawn-shop of one Rawling at the Four Bulls in Drury Lane. Shepherd, whom no house ever built with hands was strong enough to hold, was better skilled at breaking out than at breaking in, and it is remarkable that his last feat in the cracking of cribs was also his greatest. Its very conception was a masterpiece of effrontery. Drury Lane was the thief-catcher's chosen territory. Yet it was the four balls that Jack designed for attack, and watches, tie-wigs, snuff-boxes were among his booty. Whatever he could not crowd upon his person, he presented to a brace of women. Tricked out in his stolen finery, he drank and swaggered in Clare Market. He was dressed in a superb suit of black, a diamond fawny flashed upon his finger. His light tie-periwig was worth no less than seven pounds. Pistols, tortoiseshell snuff-boxes, and golden guineas jostled one another in his pockets. Thus, in brazen magnificence, he marched down Drury Lane on a certain Saturday night in November 1724. Towards midnight he visited Thomas Nix, the butcher, and having bargained for three ribs of beef, carried Nix with him to a chandler's hard by, that they might ratify the bargain with a dram. Unhappily, a boy from the Rose and Crown sounded the alarm, 
for coming into the chandlers for the empty ale-pots he instantly recognised the incomparable jail-thief and lost no time in acquainting his master now mr bradford of the rosen crown was a headborough who with the zeal of a triumphant dogberry summoned the watch and in less than half an hour jack shepherd was screaming blasphemies in a hackney-cab on his way home to newgate the stone jug received him with deference and admiration three hundred pounds weight of irons were put upon him for an adornment and the governor professed so keen a solicitude for his welfare that he never left him unattended there was scarce a beautiful woman in london who did not solace him with her condescension and enrich him with her gifts not only did the president of the royal academy deign to paint his portrait but a far greater honour hogarth made him immortal even the king displayed a proper interest demanding a full and precise account of his escapes the hero himself was drunk with flattery he bubbled with ribaldry he touched off the most valiant of his contemporaries in a ludicrous phrase but his chief delight was to illustrate his prowess to his distinguished visitors and nothing pleased him better than to slip in and out of his chains confronted with his judge he forthwith proposed to rid himself of his handcuffs and he preserved until the fatal tree an illimitable pride in his artistry nor would he believe in the possibility of death to the very last he was confirmed in the hope of pardon but pardon failing him his single consolation was that his procession from westminster to newgate was the largest that london had ever known and that in the crowd a constable broke his leg even in the condemned hold he was unreconciled if he had broken the castle why should not he also evade the gallows wherefore he resolved to carry a knife to tyburn that he might cut the rope and so losing himself in the crowd ensure escape but the knife was discovered by his warder's vigilance and taken from him after a desperate struggle at the scaffold he behaved with admirable gravity confessing the wickeder of his robberies and asking pardon for his enormous crimes of two virtues he boasted at the self-same moment that the cart left him dancing without the music i have ever cherished an honest pride never have i stooped to friendship with jonathan wild or with any of his detestable thief-takers and though an undutiful son i never damned my mother's eyes thus died jack shepherd intrepid burglar and incomparable artist who in his own separate ambition of prison-breaking remains and will ever remain unrivalled his most brilliant efforts were the result neither of strength nor of cunning for so slight was he of build so deficient in muscle that both edgeworth bess and mistress maggot were wont to bang him to their mind and purpose and an escape so magnificently planned so bravely executed as his was from the strong-room is far greater than a mere effect of cunning those mysterious gifts which enable mankind to batter the stone walls of a prison or to bend the iron bars of a cage were pre-eminently his it is also certain that he could not have employed his gifts in a more reputable profession end of section eleven